God is good all the time. One of the things that concerns me is that a lot of Christians, even folks that come to church all the time, really don't understand the biblical narrative as a whole. They sort of have pieces and parts of it. And then when they need to explain it to somebody, they can have challenges with that. I think one of the first challenges that Christians face when they decide they're going to invite people to church or share their faith is kind of coming up with a comprehensive presentation of Christianity, of the Bible, and of the gospel message. I think sometimes it's sort of like a, a math problem in high school. Is there anybody other than me that wasn't great at math in high school? Yeah, I was just good enough to qualify for classes I was going to do poorly in. That's kind of my math career. But I remember there would be times that I, I came up with the correct answer, but I wasn't quite sure how I got there. I just wasn't quite sure. And then the math teacher would say, okay, explain to me your processes. And I, I wasn't exactly able to explain them. You know, sometimes we invite people to Christ, we share our faith, people ask questions. We, 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 we know we've arrived at the right place. It's just explaining the processes can be challenging. And if it's hard to explain when somebody's just inquiring, when people are being adversarial and we have to defend our faith, it gets even more difficult. Over the next four weeks, we're going to explore an intentional and essential footer in the foundation of Orthodox Christianity. And it's simply called holiness. And I'm going to make a deal with you. If you will pay careful attention over these next four weeks, maybe even jot down a few notes, you will emerge better knowing what you believe, why you believe it, what those beliefs are based upon, and you'll be better equipped to both share your faith and defend your faith. And if this seems overly ambitious, I have to confess that I'm inclined that way. So let's start at 30,000 feet. Let's, let's get the big picture of the Bible. For me, there's 10 events that kind of move us along in the biblical narrative. So let's take a peek at them. Nine have already happened. One is still to come. All right, number one, creation. God formed a pristine world. It was heaven on earth. There was no sin. There was no abuse. There was no disease. None. All humanity had to do to embrace the good gift of the heavens and the earth was choose to obey God's commandments. That's all we had to do. In the fall, humanity chose sin and death over obedience and life. God said don't, and we did. God said do, and we didn't. And with sin, creation crashed. It took humanity offline with God. You see, sin isn't a problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us from God. The Ten Commandments represent God's establishment of a covenant with Israel. What began with Abraham and was formalized with Moses was that God carved out a people from the peoples of the world. And this people who were uniquely gods received a special designation, holy. They were a holy people. 
The exile to Babylon demonstrated that God's chosen people could stay intact as a subculture in a foreign land. It established that belief could hold people together even in the absence of a unified government and living in the same place. Those of you that are reading the Old Testament with me. How many of you are reading the Old Testament with me? We're in Jeremiah right now. This is Jeremiah in Jerusalem. And he is prophesying to the people in Jerusalem, but also to all of the exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah is part of what holds the Jewish people together during the exile. Well, eventually the exiles returned to Israel. And then the Old Testament ends... And salvation history sort of flatlines for 400 years. And you might think it's, it's dead. And then all of a sudden, there's a heartbeat. And it's a baby. Conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. God, in Christmas, strapped on skin and entered time and space. The Old Testament, if it did nothing else, it clearly established we couldn't get to God. And with the birth of Christ, God came to us. After Jesus lived a life only he could live, the crucifixion represents payment in full that was required to right the wrongs of the fall. The cross at Calvary affected the forgiveness of the sins of humanity. So through the blood of Jesus Christ, sin is forgiven. All we have to do is ask. When Jesus cried, it is finished, the price of our sin was paid in full with blood. With the resurrection, Jesus conquered death and made available to each of us the opportunity for salvation by faith. Again, all we have to do is ask. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell down upon the earth in a new way. Power that was occasionally available in the Old Testament is now made permanently available to every believer to carry out the work of God. So we're not doing this on our own. There is a power source that we can tap into called the Holy Spirit. Then the church forms. The church is the literal hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. We are the representative of Christ until his return. Is the church perfect? Ask me a serious question. And you want to know part of the reason the church isn't perfect? Because you're here today. And because I'm here today. I mean, I tell pastors all the time, if you're looking for the perfect church, you'll ruin the whole thing the second you show up. There are no perfect churches there are no perfect Christian leaders. There are no perfect Christians. But there is a perfect Jesus Christ. And we are a part of his church. We are God's strategy to bring salvation to the world. And then finally, the second coming is the one item on the list that lies still ahead of us. The return of Christ will forever restore to us what we were created to be. It's the end of what we know. It's the beginning of that to which we aspire. It's what we pray when we petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I look at the sequence that we rolled 
through with the Bible a good word for all of that. It's just salvation history. It's a love story. And it spans from Genesis to Revelation. It's the account of a jilted God who relentlessly keeps loving the humanity he created despite our persistent disobedience and unfaithfulness. Salvation history is our story. Today I want to explore the role of the Ten Commandments in that story. In January, I led 72 pilgrims to Egypt. As a part of this trip, we tucked south 250 miles from Cairo to the Sinai Peninsula. We went to trace the Exodus. We went to stand upon the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. A few brave souls from our group left about midnight, climbed to the top of the mountain in the middle of the night, no lighting, it was freezing cold, and they watched the sun come up from the top of Mount Sinai. I met them on the way down the next morning. (laughs) As anyone who has ever accompanied me on a pilgrimage can tell you, it's one thing to read a Bible story But it's something else to be there. You know the passage that Ryan read this morning? That is one serious Old Testament passage, man. I mean, you can just smell. You can can see it, feel it, smell it. I mean, it is just a serious Old Testament passage. It's, It's one thing to read stuff. But I've got to tell you, when you got your boots on the ground, it sort of turns into a pop-up book. It all sort of goes 3D on you. And part of what I wanted to do on Mount Sinai was just get off by myself. And I I slid off to the side. I I sat on this massive rock. And as our people were sort of coming down the trail from the mountain, I, I just imagined what happened between Moses and God up on top. And then I imagined standing in that same place watching Moses come down from the mountain. I mean, he'd had quite a night. The Bible says there was glory all over him. I mean, he was literally shining because the presence of the God was still stuck to him. And in his hand were two tablets. Those ten edicts we call the Ten Commandments changed the world by creating a holy people, a people set apart. The Ten Commandments defined sin for the first time and established in stone the terms of holiness. And yet the Ten Commandments are a sword with two edges. Holiness in the Bible means set apart for a special purpose. Its antonym is not profane or obscene like it is in English. The antonym of biblical holiness is ordinary. Ordinary. Kind of think of it like a tuxedo. A tuxedo is not something you wear every day. It is something that is worn on formal occasions. A tuxedo is something that is set apart for a special purpose. It is different than your other clothes. Now, the holy status of a tuxedo would not be lost if a button fell off or if you pulled a hem. It is not required that the tuxedo be perfect, just that it be set apart for a special purpose. The holy could only be lost if you started wearing the tuxedo every day. And then it would just be a suit or a really expensive pair of pajamas. 
Christians are called to holiness. To be holy is not to be flawless. It's to not be like everybody else. We are set apart as the presence of Christ until he returns. Holy people are not necessarily perfect people. I don't know any perfect people. I know three or four people that think they're perfect, but I don't know any perfect people. But we are not perfect people, but we are God's people. What makes us holy is what we believe, and what we believe informs how we act. The two cannot be separated. And this is where the Ten Commandments come in. They represent ten distinct ways that God's people believed and acted differently than ordinary people. When Jesus referred to the law of Moses in the gospel, he's referring to the Ten Commandments. Six are about properly loving your neighbor. Four are about how to properly love God. Eight are expressed in the negative, thou shalt not. Two are expressed in the positive. These are ten directives that God gave to his people, and they're most explicit. This is how to square up with God. On one hand, they gave us the clarity we always wanted, and on the other hand, they condemned us to spiritual death. The question they leave us with is a straightforward one. What distinguishes God's people from the other people of the earth in the Old Covenant? Let me just sum up the Ten Commandments. One, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and your mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. I mean, think about this. God is forming a people. He says, this is what is going to carve you out from ordinary people and make you a holy people. I am going to give you some instructions that will make you my people. Here's the incredible thing. There's only 10 of them. I mean, there's only 10 of them. And one of them is don't murder people. Doesn't that really feel like nine? <laughs> and you read the Ten Commandments and you think, we can do this. Come on, guys, we can do this. But as good as it all looked on paper or stone in this case, there's an underlying problem concerning the Ten Commandments. Humans can't keep them. And it's not just the worst of us that can't keep them. The best of us don't do very well either. Humans seem to have a spoke missing in our flywheels. Or if you're under 50, a glitch in our operating systems. And the problem is simple. We are all straight up sinners. Every one of us are straight up sinners. There's two schools of theology these days that have to do with sin, and they're both in error. One school of theology says that people who sin differently than you are worse sinners than you are. Flag. The Bible does not have degrees of sin. There's not like first degree sin, second degree sin, third degree sin. It's just not there. 
all sin separates us from God. It's not like they came up with special categories of sin that didn't fit the first three, like sin slaughter or something like that. They didn't come up with that. There are not degrees of sin. Sin is to miss the mark. It's to be separated from God. So just because people sin differently than you do doesn't make their sin any worse than yours. Just because you sin differently than others doesn't make your sin worse than theirs. But on the other hand, there's a school of theology today that says there's really no such thing as sin at all. Everything's just okay. I'm okay. You're okay. God's changed his mind on everything. There is no sin. Don't worry. Be happy. And both of these are an error. We are all sinners. All of us. And the distinction between saints and fatheads is frankly just one of degrees. Jesus could not get humanity to the next step in salvation history until he established the need for the new covenant. So in this light, both the objects of his enemies and the contents of his teaching become clear. Jesus' best argument for the new covenant was that we can't keep the old one. When he taught on the kingdom, he always raised the bar of the Ten Commandments. He never lowered it. He consistently pointed to the failure of the Pharisees to keep the law. His intent was to illustrate that if even the holy rollers can't keep the law, regular people don't stand a chance. And even if we could keep the letter of the law, which we can't, he reminded us we can never keep the spirit of the law. And it's with this understanding his attacks on the Pharisees begin to make sense. If you look theologically of all the sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism, Jesus most aligned with the Pharisees. Absolutely. And yet there's nobody that he's harder on than the Pharisees. Why? Why? Why would it be hardest on people that believe the most like him? The answer is really easy. He's saying if the holy rollers can't get it right, if the people who are closest to believing right can't get it right, what hope does everybody else have? And then when it came to the Ten Commandments, when it came to the law of Moses, Jesus never made it easier to keep the law. He made it harder because his whole point is you can't keep the law. And I can't keep the law. That is why we need Jesus. So when you understand that, teachings like this begin to make sense. Moses said you should not commit adultery. But I say if you even look at someone with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery already. Jesus had to establish we could not keep the old covenant to usher in the new covenant. When I was in seminary, I had three really good sermons. Three. That was one per year of seminary I came up with. The best of the three was a treatment of the Ten Commandments. My concern was that many in my middle Georgia congregation seemed to think that being a Christian and being a good person were one and the same. And furthermore, they believed the way that you became a good person was by keeping the Ten Commandments. Many incorrectly concluded that keeping the Ten Commandments was what made you a Christian. My sermon illustrated how we all constantly break both the spirit and the letter of the law. And I argued that if we were capable of keeping the law, there would have been no reason for Jesus to come. 
because we failed the old covenant, Jesus was sent by God to offer us a new one. And this one was not predicated on human goodness, but upon the work of Christ. My congregation really liked that sermon. All 14 of them gave it a thumbs up. (laughs) Being a good person, a religious person, or a moral person is insufficient to make us right with God. There'd be nothing that I say that is more essentially Christian than that statement. That statement is what sets Christianity apart from every other faith construct in the world. Being a good person, a religious person, or a moral person is insufficient to make us right with God. And you want to know why? Because God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin in any way. We can never be good enough for God. We can never be religious enough for God. We can never be moral enough for God. We can never be ethical enough for God. Isaiah in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament said the the, the very same thing. All human righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. Jesus did not break into time and space to help us keep the Ten Commandments. He did not break into time and space to help us be better people. Jesus never said, accept me and you'll be 43% better. Never said that. Jesus established that being religious and trying to be good won't save us. Only he can. He came to offer a sinful humanity, a personal relationship with God through his life and his death and his resurrection. His message is not try harder. I want you to hear that. The message of Christianity is not try harder. In fact, it's never try harder. The message of Christianity is be born again. A lot of you have been trying hard your whole life. And it's just been failure after failure after failure. I just need you to hear today. The message is not try harder. The message is be born again. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when he said that, we begin to understand something. The whole of the Old Testament is God doing what God had to do to get us from the fall to a Savior in Christ. He said, the Old Testament's a mess. Do you think? But it's what God had to do. God had to make a covenant with a man named Abraham. God had to carve out a people that began with the Ten Commandments. God had to bless this people, keep them intact through the exile. All of the Ten Commandments, the voices of the prophet, the tenures of the kings, all of the Old Testament is God doing what God had to do to get us to Jesus. Why is it so messy? Because God works with people. Because God works with people. And now, now we have a new covenant. We have this new covenant that Christ came to bring us. You see, the closer we get to God, 
through Christ. Yeah, we're going to inevitably better keep the Ten Commandments. And if you think about it, we're not saved because we keep the Ten Commandments. But once we're saved, we'll be better keeping the Ten Commandments quite naturally. You see, we're not saved because we're holy. We're made holy because we're saved. We're not saved because we're good. But being saved should make us better. You see, if we're saved by what we have done, our salvation is based upon our grip on God. But if we're saved because of what Christ has done, our salvation is based on God's grip on us. And I don't know about you, but my grip on God's better sometimes than others. Sometimes I feel like Fred Boletnikoff in 1972 with stick'em all over my hand. Man, I can catch any pass in the world. My grip is unbelievable. And other times I feel like somebody's throwing and it's 30 four degrees and raining and it's just hard to keep a hold of things but the good news for me is that my salvation is not based upon my grip on God it's based upon God's grip on me and your salvation is not based upon your grip on God it's based upon God's grip on you and I don't know about you but I find that really comforting really really comforting salvation under the new covenant begins by acknowledging that we are sinners. All of us. We have to acknowledge that we can't keep the law. C.S. Lewis said, you'll never know how hard it is to do right until you try it. We've all found that true, haven't we? We are all sinners who must repent of our sin. And we must offer Christ his rightful place in our lives. Asking Christ into our lives, not keeping the Ten Commandments, is the on-ramp to a relationship with God. Keeping the Ten Commandments doesn't save us. But being saved will better enable us to keep the Ten Commandments. So as I close, I want you to understand we are not saved because we are good. We're saved because God is good. We are not saved because of what we have done. We are saved by what Christ has done. Reconciliation between God and the old covenant was a religious ritual to be performed and an ultimate prize to be earned. But salvation in the new covenant is a relationship to be entered and a gift to be received. And all we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask. Maybe you've been around religion your whole life. Maybe you had it shoved down your throat the first part of your life. Maybe you've tried your whole life to be good. You've always wondered why it's not working very well. I would like to humbly suggest to you that the place to start the Christian adventure is not by trying harder to be a better person or a better Christian, the place to start the Christian adventure is by being born again. And all we have to do is ask Jesus to forgive our sin because the price has already been paid. All we have to do is ask him into our hearts because he's already risen from the grave. 
I'd like to ask you to bow your head with me. And let's pray and ask Jesus into our life. If you've never done this before, let this be that first step. And if you have, let this be a reaffirmation of our faith. Would you repeat after me? Almighty God, thank you for loving me. And I love you too. I know I can never be good enough for you. I can never be religious enough. I can never be moral enough. I can never be ethical enough. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And give me the grace to forgive myself. Jesus, come into my life in a fresh new way. Make your residence in me. And may my life reflect you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for the adventure that begins right now. I pray it in your strong name. Amen. Look at me and say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. When we ask Jesus into our lives, that is when the adventure begins.